I like drinking coffee, but as much as I like drinking coffee, I actually like the process of making coffee even more. Uh, I enjoy walking into the kitchen, opening up my cabinet, grabbing my bag of coffee beans. Yes, I'm snobby enough to buy beans and not ground coffee. Um, and so I grab those coffee beans, I set a container on my scale, pour in 17 grams of coffee beans, I turn on the faucet, dip a spoon underneath it, stir those coffee beans to dampen them so once I grind them, there's not so much static that when I pour them into my filter, they end up on the floor, uh, which happens regularly. Uh, and then I, I grab the kettle, and I set it to boiling, grab my filter and my dipper and pour the boiling water into the paper filter so it doesn't have that weird taste to it. And I set the dipper on top of uh, a mug, pour in those 17 grams, and then I take the boiling water, 50 grams of water, let it sit for 45 seconds. It bubbles up, gets rid of all those gases, gets rid of any weird bitter taste. Then I pour up to 200 grams, give it a little swirl. Wait a second, 89 more grams. Take, take the spoon I wet earlier, two clockwise stirs, two counterclockwise stirs, <laughs> and I wait for it all to drain. And then uh, take the, the filter and the dipper, throw what needs to go in the trash, wash out the, the, the dipper, and I watch the steam come up, little blow, test sip, and when the temperature's just right, I, I drink my coffee. Uh, and as much as I enjoy my coffee and what you might say is my ritual of making my coffee, uh, those elements that make up that morning joy that I have, <laughs> they're useless until they're all combined. If I were to walk into the kitchen and I were to, to take out my bag of coffee beans and toss a few in my mouth and start chewing them and I'd take a, a swig of my half and half and then pour some boiling water into my mouth, it would, it would not go well for me. <laughs> I would end up sick and burned. Uh, because when I isolate the ingredients, I, I wreck their usefulness. And as we close out the book of Colossians this evening, we're going to see this theme repeated uh, over and over throughout these last verses that believers are, are better when they operate together. And the community of faith or the church, it's a beautiful thing. Christ has created it. But when you isolate yourself from other believers, you, you will wreck your usefulness to God as well. You're not as going to be as strong as you could be. You will not be as beautiful as you could be. And you will certainly not be as useful as you should be. And so as we draw this big conclusion from the ending of Colossians, and Paul is pouring out his pastoral concerns for the believers here in Colossae, we see that because you were called to serve in community, every Christian is called to serve in community. Because of that, you must express sincere concern for other believers. And it's kind of this, this umbrella statement right there that express sincere concern for other believers. And Paul's going to break that up for us a little bit as he bounces all over the place uh, here at the end of Colossians. And there's four parts that help us express sincere concern. The first one is this. Because as a Christian, you're called to serve in community, you should seek to know and to encourage people's spiritual needs, right? The best way to build up a community for us to serve in and to serve with is to go deep in conversation with others so that you can know their spiritual needs and you can use that knowledge to encourage them in those areas. Know so that you can encourage. And we're going to see uh, different ways to do this to know so that we can encourage. Because the first reason that we should do this is that it enables you to better encourage and also be encouraged by other believers, which includes missionaries. We see this 
here at the very beginning of our passage, Colossians 4, verse 7 and 8. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, he will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. In other words, this is what Paul is saying. Tychicus, he will come and he will tell you about me, and then he will know about you. There's this, this back and forth, this give and take in this missionary and church relationship. The Colossians need to know Paul's needs and encourage him, and Tychicus wants to know the Colossian believers and their needs so that he and Paul can encourage them. And so this community of faith that we find in the church, it works best when we are identifying people's needs and encouraging them in those areas. And it's even something that we should do for our missionaries, right? Paul's not with them. He's, he's a missionary. And so we should seek to stay informed of their needs so that we can pray for them and we can encourage them. And the benefit of this is that it puts you in a position to better be encouraged by them. In other words, uh, when they come to give a report and you go, hey, I, I was praying for you and for your family and that God would provide for this national pastor that you're training to take over the church so that you can go on to another place, right? That's the goal of a missionary, to be able to leave. And you ask, how's that process going? And hopefully this is what you get to hear and be encouraged by. Well, thank you. He's actually the one who is taking care of everything while I'm on furlough. So let me tell you all about what God is doing. There's this, this give and take of knowing and encouraging, and this even includes missionaries, because it puts you in a better place to be encouraged by them as well. But also this command applies even when other believers have a vastly different background than you do. And we all know people who are different. Well, well different from us. <laughs> Maybe I should say it that way. Uh, they may be different culturally. They may be different um, in terms of their status, but there are so many differences that we can have with other believers, and yet from a worldly perspective, it might appear that these differences are insurmountable, but we're still called to know and to encourage people. All right, let's look at a few of this kind of hodgepodge crew that Paul had thrown together to travel with him on his missionary journeys. You see the first one in verse 9. His name is Onesimus. Paul is going to send Tychicus with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will make known to you all the things which are happening here. Now, Onesimus, that name should ring a little bit of a bell. Uh, it comes up quite often in Paul's letters, uh, primarily in Philemon, because Onesimus was a runaway slave. And when Onesimus met Paul, heard the gospel, accepted Christ as Savior, uh, it's this glorious story of how the gospel changed everything for Onesimus. And so Paul writes this letter to Philemon, and he encourages Philemon, accept Onesimus back, not just as a slave, but accept him back as a brother. Because Onesimus, essentially he was a rebel, but God transformed him. Even though he had a, a radically different background from many of these believers in Colossae, a runaway slave, they had a responsibility to know and to encourage him. We also see Aristarchus. Uh, verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, he greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions if he comes to you. Welcome him. Now, we don't have much information about Aristarchus, but the info we do have tells us this incredible story because Paul has dis uh, assembled this diverse missionary team, choosing people from all over, and, and they forged ahead. They've been making gospel advances for the glory of Christ, and Aristarchus has been so bold in his proclamation of the gospel that he had gotten him thrown himself he had gotten himself thrown into prison right next to Paul. Aristarchus is one dedicated guy, dedicated to the core. 
he had some serious guts. He's, he's in prison because of what he believed about Christ. And we look at someone like Aristarchus who is so mature and, and so bold, and there's this temptation when we encounter mature believers like Aristarchus. Where, uh, they don't need to be encouraged. Uh, they've, they've got it all going. Uh, they understand what's happening. But even if they're at a vastly different stage of their Christian life than you and I are, even if they started, it seems, from a different point, you're not called to be an isolated Christian, and neither are they, no matter how mature they are. You're called to serve in a community, and that includes encouraging others when it comes to their spiritual needs. And the next one in this hodgepodge crew here is, is Mark. All right, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And, and this is crazy to me because in the same breath as Paul mentions Aristarchus, Paul mentions John Mark. I mean, Aristarchus is this, this bold preacher of the gospel who ended up in jail, and John Mark was an abandoner of the gospel work. I mean, Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, when the going got tough, John Mark left his companions high and dry. Well, actually, it was worse than that. It was maybe he left them low and cold and damp. It's probably more like it. But do you know what's worse? It's the fact that because Mark had abandoned that work, it broke up the missionary team when it came for round two. I mean, Mark messed everything up, and yet when Paul mentions him here, he tells the Colossian believers, welcome him. Mark had redeemed himself in Paul's eyes. And in 2 Timothy, Paul actually says Mark is extremely useful. And that's the same passage where we, we saw many months ago that there are three ways to run in the Christian life. The first one is to start out of the blocks and run and run and run and run and never slow down and make it to the finish line. Then there's Demas who, who starts running in this marathon and he sees a Starbucks and he skirts off to the side and he never joins the race again. But Mark was way more creative than that. He started running, and he fell at that first hurdle, and he was flat on his face. And Barnabas came back around to him, and, and he picked him up, and he got up and started limping and gained speed, and eventually he did finish well. And we have this call for us to be like that Barnabas, to come alongside and to know and to encourage these believers, no matter how much of a failure they might be in our eyes, to pick them up and say, come on, let's finish well. The next one we see is named Justice. You see this in verse 11. It says, and Jesus, who is called Justice. Now, if my name was Jesus, I would probably change it as well. Those are some pretty high expectations. <laughs> These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. In other words, they're Jews. They have proven to be a comfort to me. So, so Paul tacks on justice to this uh, conversation. And there's nothing really too notable about him other than the fact that he was a Jew. He was of the circumcision. So from the believers in Colossae, most of whom are Gentile, he was very different ethnically and also in his introduction to Christianity because he knew all about the Old Testament. Like all these promises. And he sees them all and he goes, they're all pointing to Christ. These Gentile believers didn't have that. He's different than 95% of these people, and yet he's part of the same family. And that means that these believers in Colossae are to invest in him spiritually. So that new person, you might have spotted uh, last week or two weeks ago or, or today, sitting on the piano side or, or wherever they were, that you were too scared to introduce yourself to. Um, they might have a train wreck of a past like John Mark. 
they might be way more spiritually mature than you think you are, Aristarchus. But you're called to serve in community and to encourage them in their spiritual needs. And now, if you're thinking, come on, Paul, I'm an introvert, give me a break. (laughs) Well, he doesn't give you a break. But he does give you opportunities to minister even to people that you can't see face to face. That's an introvert's dream right there. (laughs) This command applies even to others that you cannot see because they're not physically with you. None of those people that Paul is mentioning are actually at the church in Colossae. Like Luke and Demas, they, they serve to make this point for us. We see them in verses 14 and 15. Even though they're not physically present, these believers are to encourage these other believers, even if it's from a distance. Look at what Paul says in Colossians 4, verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, in Nymphus, and the church that is in his house. And then even at the end of the letter, Paul reminds the believers about himself. He says, remember, I am in chains. That's verse 18. Remember my chains. And so Paul tells these believers to prioritize knowing and encouraging spiritual needs of others, even when they're not physically present. I mean, Luke's with Paul. Demas is with Paul. Laodicea, which Paul says to, to greet them, that's almost three hours away. And Paul signs the end of the book with his own handwriting, Paulos, and he says, I'm in prison. And yet these people still had a responsibility to care for the spiritual needs of those long distances away. And Paul makes that demand on them in the era of scrolls and sandals. So I think we should be able to fulfill that even better in the era of email and cars. Visit someone in a nursing home or, or send an email to a missionary. Take some initiative and encourage fellow believers in their walk with the Lord, especially this winter. I mean, it's way easier to grow discouraged in the winter. So we see in this umbrella of expressing sincere concern for other believers that we are to know and encourage people's spiritual needs because you're part of a community. Now, second in this this umbrella here, we see because Christians are called to serve in community, you should pray bigger than yourself. Pray bigger than yourself. In other words, when you, when you realize that you are part of a community that is far bigger than just a single dot on a map, it will change the way that you pray. You begin to pray bigger than yourself. Let me explain what I mean. It's in verses uh, 12 and 13. This is modeled off of a man named Epaphras. And we see at the beginning of verse 12 that Epaphras prayed for others often. Look at the text, Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Now, way back at the beginning of the book of Colossians, chapter 1, we talked about Epaphras just for a little bit. Um, and Paul calls Epaphras a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. That's what he says back in chapter 1. But now in uh, chapter 4, Paul is going to zoom in on Epaphras' ever-changing ministry to the church in Colossae because he's not with them anymore. He says, Epaphras is one of you. He's from your congregation, but you guys don't own him. It says, he is a bond servant of Christ. Jesus owns Epaphras. He is totally enlisted in the service of the Lord, and he is modeling everything that I have been teaching throughout this letter. Uh, Epaphras is is knowing and encouraging believers. How is he doing that? 
by praying for others often. Paul says he is always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Or perhaps a better translation of this phrase could say, Epaphras is wrestling in prayer for you. There's a man named Richard Wilbanks, and he met Gunner in Miami, Florida. Um, They became inseparable friends. Uh, Gunner, by the way, is a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, so a dog. And Richard and Gunner would love to snuggle up next to each other. And, and Richard's home overlooks uh, this beautiful and wild nature preserve, uh, but the scenic home is the breeding ground for alligators, like all of Florida. And one Sunday morning, Richard and, and Gunner, they're on a walk, and they're walking by one of these lakes, and there was an alligator on the prowl. And in the blink of an eye, this, this four-foot-long gator snatches up Gunner, who was really only five or six pounds, and out of instinct, Richard jumps into the water after the alligator and after Gunner, and he begins wrestling this gator to save the life of his precious puppy. And Richard describes the, the grasp that the alligator had on Gunner as a, a vice grip. And after working to, to pry apart the gator's mouth, Gunner finally is able to limp away. But Richard is still holding the gator's mouth open like this, and he's left to fend for himself with all of those sharp teeth. And in the end, because Richard was willing to wrestle for the well-being of Gunner, Richard was the one who came away with more injuries than the dog. He, he jumped into the lake to wrestle an alligator because he thought it was for something far bigger than himself. That's the word picture here. That's how you should view intercessory prayer, prayer for others. Other believers are in this life and death struggle that Satan wants to use to wreck their souls and their profitability to Jesus, but you have an opportunity to jump into their battle and wrestle with them against Satan's plans. So are you wrestling in prayer for the sake of others? Are you doing it often? No, I don't think it's reasonable to say you have to pray for every person you know every day, but you should have a a, a system that enables you to pray for more people more often, to join in in their struggle, to wrestle with them against sin for the glory of Christ. Now, personally, the way I do this is I, I have six different categories that I kind of divide people into, and each category gets a day. And there are some special people, about 20 of them, uh, that I pray for every day. Some people are on that list because they're relatives. Uh, Some people, well, one person is on there, not some. One is on there because I'm planning to marry her. Uh, Some are are just incredible friends that I want to continually hold up before the Lord. I want to wrestle on their behalf. But perhaps the the best idea that I've heard uh, regarding prayer and intercessory prayer, praying for others, is to come up with a list of as many close friends as you can. Ideally, it will be 30 or 31. And assign each one of them a number and... When the calendar has that number on it, call them and pray for them with them still on the phone. They can actually hear you praying for them. And here's the the wonderful thing about that is that oftentimes when you're done praying for them, they go, oh, can I pray for you? We like that. (laughs) It it, it thrills my heart when I hear people praying for me. And, And I want to be able to do that for them as well, to wrestle for them in prayer. You need to be praying bigger than yourself by praying for others often. 
But the second part of this idea of praying bigger than yourself is that you need to pray for things that you can't accomplish for the person, but that only God can accomplish for that person. Right? Praying more, uh, less for things that are physical and more for things that are spiritual, that God would accomplish spiritual wonders in their life. And we see this uh, in the second half of verse 12. Paphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Well, what is he praying? That you may stand perfect and complete or fully assured of all the will of God. For I bear witness that he has great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. So this is what Paul says the content of Epaphras' prayer for the church in Colossians. He says, Epaphras is praying that you would stand firm as mature believers, fully assured of the will of God. Right, that's just half a sentence, but it, there's so much here. So let, let's break it apart just a little bit. What does it mean to stand firm as a mature believer who is fully assured of the will of God? Well, first, the Epaphras wants these believers to stand firm. Ray say it this way. He wants them to be able to support themselves and stand on their own two feet. That their ability to walk with the Lord wouldn't be totally dependent upon others. It should be influenced by others, but not totally dependent on others. Epaphras doesn't want these Christians to be like toddlers who are fully capable of standing on their own, but when they get tired, give up and ask mommy to carry them. He wants them to stand firm, and he wants them to be mature, right? On guard against the false teachers that Paul has mentioned in chapter 3. They must be standing firmly on the gospel so that this false teaching won't tug them away. But the only way they can do this is by being discerning mature believers, Toddlers can't discern what is good from bad, let alone what is good from what is best. And so Epaphras wants these believers to be totally mature so they can discern what is good and what is true from what is not. So stand firm as a mature believer. But the second half of, of that phrase is even more interesting. That they would be fully assured of the will of God. So Epaphras is desiring that these believers would have a full assurance that they have all that they need through Christ. That is what the entire letter of Colossians is about. Christ is sufficient. Because what is the will of God? The will of God is that you would find your total satisfaction in Christ, that Jesus would be your delight. And so Epaphras is daily praying for these believers. He is wrestling for them that they would understand that Christ can be their delight. He can be their love. He can be their all in all. Can you see now how Epaphras is praying so much bigger than himself? He, he's wrestling in prayer for others. And the heartbeat of his prayer is that there would be spiritual formation in the lives of these believers. They would grow up. They would stand firm as mature believers who are fully assured that they can be satisfied in Christ they find their delight in Jesus. And so do your prayers for others, do they echo Epaphras' heart? Are you praying that our teens would come to realize that, that sports and academics, they can't satisfy, but only Christ can satisfy? Are you praying for our families, that, that fathers and mothers and, and grandmas and grandpas, that they would be mature and they would teach their children and their grandchildren to grow in their walk with Jesus? Because as believers who are called to serve in community, you have to be praying bigger than yourself. And the only way that you will do that 
as if, as if like Epaphras, you have a burning passion for others to know and to walk with their Savior. Paul says he burns with great zeal for the believers in Colossae and also the two sister cities. And to create that passion within you, to constantly wrestle on behalf of others, you need to know their needs. And when you know their needs and how great they are, how much spiritual firepower it takes to tear down these habitual sins and to walk in the spirit, you won't be able to help but pray for them. These, these are fully connected to, to know and to encourage spiritual needs and to pray bigger than yourself. So just two more short thoughts here from this melting pot of Paul's pastoral concerns at the end of the Colossians. So you're called to serve in community, which requires this sincere concern for others. Two ways you can express that. One is that you know and encourage others. One is that you pray bigger than yourself. And here's the third. We see it in verse 16. It involves learning from other ministries. Because Christians are called to serve in community, you should learn from other ministries or churches. Look at verse 16. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans. That's that church that's three hours away. And that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So here's what's going on. Paul charges the believers at Colossae, hey, when you're done with this letter, take it and pass it on to Laodicea. And when they're done with the letter that I wrote them, make sure they send it to you and you guys read it. Now, obviously, the letter to the Laodiceans, it's not inspired. If it was, we would have it here. But despite that, Paul wants the Colossians to have it and to read it. That's insightful for us. It reminds us to learn from the struggles and also the successes of other churches. Because it seems that some of the false teaching that Paul is combating here in Colossians 3, somehow it had made its way and trickled over to Laodicea, which is why Paul wants this letter read in Laodicea. And it's all fostering this spirit of learning from each other. Different churches, but learning from each other. And it's disproving this, this major false assumption that many people have about churches that exist in the same area, particularly. It's disproving this idea that we are in competition with other churches because we're not in competition with other churches. We should rejoice when there are other churches in the same area as us that are faithfully proclaiming the gospel and seeing lives transformed. They're not encroaching on our turf. They're reaching people that we can't. And we should celebrate that. Whenever possible, we should join together with them to have an even bigger, uh, bigger chance of transforming lives through the gospel. And if your mindset is, is that we are in competition with other churches, they're stealing people from us. If that's your mindset, you've got it all wrong. They're fulfilling God's call to every local church to make disciples by investing in believers with this great love, seeing them come to Christ, identifying them with Christ, and then setting them on a track to grow in their walk with Christ. We're not running against other churches that attract me. We're in a three-legged race with them. We're, we're not going to war with other faithful churches. We're going to war with them by our side as we fight against Satan, and it's all for the glory of Christ. So go get coffee with someone from a different church. 
Talk about what they're learning from Sunday morning messages. Talk about how God is using that to transform their lives. Talk about struggles that you sense in our church and struggles that they face in their church. See how they've had to overcome those same things because we're on the same team. We're on the winning team. So don't war against them. Learn with them and let's strengthen the body of Christ. Because Christians are called a servant community, you should learn from other churches. And then lastly here, because Christians are called to serve in community, your sufferings should prompt you to disciple others. So remember, Paul is in prison as he is writing this letter. And even with that, his mind is set on things so much larger than himself, and he is using his experiences that he has gained from his own suffering to prompt him to see that this other man that we're going to see in verse 17, he wants to use his sufferings to encourage this man in verse 17 to grow in a service for the Lord. And that's incredibly informative for us. So look at verse 17. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. So who is Archippus? Well, in Philemon, Paul calls Archippus a fellow soldier. And Paul is sensing that this fellow soldier in the gospel ministry, he's struggling. He's feeling the pressures of ministry. And Paul is wanting the Colossian believers to surround Archippus and encourage him in his ministry. And he notes that this ministry was given to Archippus from the Lord. In other words, Archippus didn't choose to be in vocational ministry. God's the one who called him. I mean, Archippus, it seems like he hardly had a choice. That's the way Paul describes his, his call into ministry. He's like, I didn't have a choice. Like, I had to do it. God called me. And to be fair, that's a good thing, but it's also a hard thing. I mean, if a man is in ministry only because he wants to be in ministry, well, it's way easier to give up on ministry. But when you feel that your charge is from the Lord himself, it gives a great deal more grit and determination and heart to stick with what the Lord has called him to. And so Paul says to these believers in the Colossian church, you guys play a critical role in seeing that this man fulfills his ministry. Pay attention to Archippus so that he doesn't stumble and doesn't quit before he has finished the work that God has called him to. And Paul knew the struggles of ministry. And yet despite his circumstances as he's sitting there in prison, He's using his experiences, experiences learned in suffering, and he's using them as a means of discipling this other man, Archippus. He's literally practicing what he preached in 2 Corinthians 1.4. He says, God comforts us in all our tribulation. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. Paul says, you might be going through suffering, through a trial that God is using to grow you, and now that you've made it through, or maybe like Paul, you're still in the middle of it. You and I are to use what we have learned in our suffering to help others through their struggles. And when you realize that you're called to serve in community, you view your suffering not as, as just some horrible trial that has no point, but you view it as a tool that God has given you. It's a tool to grow in your walk with God, and it's a tool to disciple others as you see them going through a similar struggle. And so when you spot a couple... And they seem to be struggling. And you begin by seeking to know their needs and encourage them. And you realize that this wife has been diagnosed with a chronic illness, with a treatment plan that looks like it will drag on for years. 
then you use your experiences and your knowledge to begin comforting them. Also to wrestle on their behalf in prayer. And if you've never been through a situation like that, well, you've obviously known and encouraged other people in the church who have gone through something like that. And so you connect the two so that they can encourage these struggling believers in their time of need. And so you see that all four of Paul's avenues for expressing sincere concern for other believers, they all work together. Know and encourage, pray, learn from others, disciple, even through suffering. They, they all link to this true concern for others. And every single one of those duties that you and I are compelled to do, as we serve in community, with community, every single one of them, they all require grace. And that's why Paul closes his letter to these dear believers in this way. Verse 18, this salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains, grace be with you. You cannot know and encourage, you cannot pray, you cannot learn from others, you cannot disciple apart from the spiritual firepower that God will give you. So this week, I pray that your heart will be tender to the Lord's call on your life as you serve within the church, and that your service would compel you to show sincere concern for others in all different kinds of ways. Because when you isolate yourself from the body, you wreck your usefulness for the Lord. So may grace be with you, providing the spiritual firepower that you need to obey God's call for us to serve in community. Would you stand with me here as we pray? Father, we thank you for this passage here in Colossians 4. It seems like Paul had so many thoughts on his heart and his mind that he just wanted to express to these believers, and there's so much for us to glean. And Lord, it's so easy for us to, to draw back from ministry and from serving you when things are going difficult in our own lives. But Lord, when we isolate ourselves, we're not nearly as useful to you as we should be. So I pray that you would help us this week to find avenues to serve and to express our concern for others. That we would get to know people primarily so that we can encourage them to grow. That we'd pray far bigger than ourselves, but that we would learn from others and make it a point to disciple others so that we can join together as a church, as the body of Christ, and we can advance his cause. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.